My name is Kirk Dunn, and this is the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. I'm an actor, writer, and knitter, and I'm also known as the Knitting Pilgrim. I earned that title because in 2003, I was awarded an Ontario Arts Council Chalmers Grant to knit stitched glass, an installation of three large panels designed in the style of stained glass windows, which look at the commonalities and the conflicts between the three Abrahamic faiths. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They took me 15 years to knit. And when the project was complete, my wife Claire and I wrote a play called The Knitting Pilgrim about my experience knitting stitch glass and my research into interfaith relations. One thing that wasn't covered in the play was the meaning behind the imagery in the knitted panels. So this series explores each section in conversation because ultimately the project is about having conversations with empathy and curiosity about how we understand and sometimes misunderstand each other. Welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. In this episode, we'll be talking about a, a section from the Islamic window or panel. And, um, and as a, a big picture structural reminder, um, just to remind you that uh, inside the symbols of the star and the crescent, um, which make up the structure of the window, uh, I've, I've placed positive images of the faith, whereas the images outside the star and the crescent reflect the more challenging things that uh, Islam is dealing with. And um, and today we're, we're going to be talking about one of those challenges, and that is the, uh, the terrible press that Islam receives uh, in Western media. So if we take a look at the, the window, we can see just to the left of the star uh, an image of a television set. And um, actually on the TV screen, if we can, and we'll get it in as close as we can there, uh, is another image. And that image has three aspects. It's uh, it's in the shape of a spherical bomb, so like you know an old time cartoony bomb, and you can see a little fuse up in the, the top or left uh, corner, or not cor corner because it's spherical in the top or left side. Um, and the crescent and the star of Islam are actually incorporated into that shape, as is the globe, uh, so like the the Earth. And these images were inspired by a conversation I had with the Muslim uh, women who um, who told me, you know, it's it's ironic uh, because uh, I feel we have the best religion um, with the worst press. And to talk to us today about Islam and the modern media, I'd like to welcome Dr. Catherine Bullock. Dr. Bullock is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, where her teaching focus is political Islam from a global perspective. And her research focuses on the Muslim experience in Canada, including, among a, a great many other things, the representation of Islam and Muslims in the media. She's been the editor of the American Journal of Islamic Social Sciences, is the past vice president of the Association of Muslim Social Scientists, North America, and her most recent work is a pioneering study of Muslim philanthropy in Canada. Her book, Rethinking Muslim Women and the Veil, Challenging Historical and Modern Stereotypes, has been translated into Arabic, French, Malayalam, and Turkish. 
Dr. Bullock has co-founded and sat on the boards of several grassroots organizations and is currently the president of Compass Books, dedicated to publishing top quality books about Islam and Muslims in English. Originally from Australia, she presently lives in Oakville, Ontario, with her husband and children, as she embraced Islam in 1994. Dr. Bullock, welcome to the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. Hi, Kirk. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start off our conversation um, with that phrase, uh, best religion and the worst press. Uh, but, but before we go into the, the worst press end of things, I would love to start off on a positive note. And so I'm curious if you can share with us, what is it that drew you to Islam? Because I understand you you came to Islam in 1994. And uh, of course, it appealed to you as, a, as a, a beautiful, wonderful thing. So what were the aspects of Islam that you'd like to tell everybody about and make sure they understand? Thanks. That's, I really like the way of studying this topic. I came to Canada in 1991 as an atheist feminist who was quite hostile towards Muslims, although I didn't really realize it at the time. But the images on the TV were of men with their little Qurans, the big beards, the burning the effigies of George Bush. They were shouting Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar with their guns and death for America. And they, they seemed very scary that they were that they were out to, you know, hate hate the West and hate us. And when I got to Queen's University, I was actually scared when I met people who told me they were, you know, I met one guy from Libya and I was thinking, oh my God, why the University of Queen's led in a terrorist? He was telling me about his PhD topic, which was about how if you boil sugar or something, it changes its chemical. I don't know, it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't focused at all. Um, and it, that kind of disjuncture between how nice the Muslims at Queen's were and my images coming in really set me on a path of self-reflection, like why did I think that about them? How had I been led to think about that? Uh, how come I didn't know when I used to talk to them about you know, their religion? And how come I didn't know these parts about the faith? And I accidentally got interested. I, I wasn't intending to. But I had become an atheist uh, during my undergraduate years where in political science they emphasized the Marxist notion of religion as the opium of the people. And, you know, that it's something created by humans because they can't face up to the fact that they're alone in the universe and, you know, we evolved and, you know, there's no meaning to life. And feminism, which uh, focused on the patriarchy and the misogyny of all the religions, it, it totally persuaded me. But when I started to meet with the Muslims and I started to to understand more about the faith from the way they understood it, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's nothing like what I've been told. And the things that drew me in were actually the Quranic concept of God. Uh, it's very clean. It's very logical. And uh, I, I had been told I'd... I had grown up, you know, in a faith where faith sort of didn't make sense. It was illogical, but I was told that's a good thing because that's what faith means to, to not be logical. Uh, and I was, I was so impressed with meeting a faith that was also logical. So the, the journey from, um, atheism to belief in a way was the hardest because how do you become someone who doesn't believe in the existence of God to believe in a creator? And I actually spent a lot of time reading lay physics 
which talks about the intelligent design, the creative design behind the universe of the designer. Now, these physicists don't always believe in God or organized religion, but the evidence around the idea of intelligent design in the universe for me was very compelling. And I'm like, okay, so the universe has a design, there's an intelligence behind it. I don't mind calling that intelligence God. And then to say you believe in a creator, I, t I looked around at uh, at least six different religions and the only one that kind of matched that in terms of, you know, an intelligent design behind the universe in this clear way was Islam the way that it, dis it describes the creator and the relationship to creation. So that was the thing that drew me in. It, it was just, it, it was so compelling. And then the other thing is, and I know that your viewers might find this a bit weird, but in fact, the Quran's teachings about women were very impressive. They really appealed to me. There's a lot of verses about men and women as equals, uh, receiving the same rewards, having been created from the like soul. Um, Eve wasn't blamed for the fall. In fact, Adam took responsibility, peace be upon him. So there was no concept of original sin or, um, you know, female functions as any kind of punishment. There was none of that. And that was very beautiful and it was very attracting. So that drew me in. It took me about three and a half years and then finally I decided uh, that I would convert and become Muslim. It's a very long answer to your question but that yes well your uh, your path is is quite a testimonial to uh, to the good things about Islam so thank you thank you for that with with respect to the images that we see in in the media and then you alluded to a few of them yourself you know the the men with their little qurans and their ak-47s and chanting and all that kind of stuff um wh why is it that uh western media is, is is fixated on that do you think what is the uh what is the benefit to western media to portray Islam in that light? That's a very good question. I teach a course on Islam and politics. It takes us about 13 weeks to go through the answer. Um, but I have, I'll give you it in two ways. So I think there's what I call the structural reason and then there's the cultural reason. The structural reason is about the economics of, of the media and it applies to any group, not just Muslims, where, you know, that famous saying, if it bleeds, it leads. There's a need nowadays of what you have clicks on the website, so there needs to be uh, the thing that attract, attract the most attention, which unfortunately in human nature tends to be the negative things. The newspaper doesn't say nothing happened today, everyone got to school on time and there were no accidents and, you know, lunches were delicious we would find that boring. So human nature likes attracted to the sensational, to the extreme, to the exotic. And these uh, sound bites of, of Muslims doing those things fit perfectly in, into, into that need. There's like an economic business need that emphasizes those. So that's the structural aspect. The cultural aspect is the very long history in Western cultural discourse of anti-Islam, of anti-Islamic um, 
ideas. I, we can trace it all the way back to the very first uh, attack on the Quran, written by a Christian theologian called Saint John of Damascus in uh, 700 and something. I think he was around 700. He was actually, his father was actually employed by the Muslim caliph. He was in Damascus. He worked for one of the Umayyad caliphs. And his son, who became St. John of Damascus, uh, then left, went to Jerusalem to, to become a monk. And he wrote a book, The Fount of Knowledge, where he talked about the heresy of the Quran. It's, you know, Muhammad as this horrible, disgusting man, a heretic creating a disgusting religion. And in a way that he has set um, many of the images that have survived all through Christendom, the Crusades. Uh, then you have the colonial era, which also put forward this idea of Muslims as backward and in need of civilizing. Then once we move beyond Christendom into the secular world, many of these images have remained. So the, the Muslim has, has, has remained in this very deep aspect, I think, of Western cultural discourse as the menacing, threatening, uh, but also exotic and alluring other. And the media then, because of that need for sensationalism that I mentioned, it's just such an easy stereotype to fall on. A lot of Muslim men have long beards and turbans, but did you ever see someone like that interviewed to talk about, I don't know, relationship advice or how to fix the environment or I mean the viewer would be like there'd be such a disconnect like this is the image of an evil terrorist why is he telling me about relationship advice like it, it wouldn't it just wouldn't compute so it's easier for the media not to tamper too much with the audience's expectations I see yes now you, you mentioned um St. John of Damascus, if I could just uh, go back to that. Um, what, where did his uh, take on the Quran come from? Like, what was the context that he brought to that? Had he suffered uh, at the hands of, uh, of, of Islam or was, was he just trying to make a name for himself? Like, where did, where did all that stuff come from originally? I, well, that's a wonderful question. To the best of my knowledge, he didn't suffer. I, like I said, his father was employed in, in the caliph's court. Uh, Christians were a protected minority in the Muslim empire. Um, I believe that... Uh, it, and this could be wrong, but what I remember from my studies, which is done a bit of a long time ago, in fact, a lot of the Christian Arabs were becoming friendly and uh, friendly with the Muslims, and there were some leaders who were a bit worried about that. They, they thought maybe the their minority was going to lose its identity, and so there was a need to explain this new religion that they were that they were living under. Saint John of Damascus. There was a myth at the time that Muhammad had wanted to be pope and had failed, and so he schismed off and set up a heretical religion. So I think, you know, in fact, there are Muslims who do this today, that the minority, they feel under threat. So the best way to defend your, your, yourself is to attack what you feel is threatening you. And I, and I think that's, that's how I would explain it. Right. Well, that, that makes sense. And yes, we, we definitely do see that uh, everywhere people are, 
are feeling um, concerned about that the other and the best uh, defense is a good offense. Yeah. Okay. Now, I mean, there, there, there are so many things that um, I, I can think of in the uh, in the press that uh, that still um, that are still pushed on us as a as consumers, because I think that's where we are. We're consumers of, of uh, news media, the things uh, that are anti-Muslim and Islamophobic, things like the coverage, the repeated coverage of uh, of, of, of 9-11. And that, um, you know, certainly it is meant to be a remembrance of, you know, the, the that terrible tragedy. And yet we rarely hear about um, the, 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 the Muslim remembrance of that and, and how that affected um, Islam and how Muslims feel about that. In fact, we don't hear about that at all. Um, so in all of these things, and, and again, the um, uh, the other thing that occurs to me is the uh, the fatwa that was declared or that was passed against um, uh, Salman Rushdie. Uh, we never hear about the fact that that, <laughs> that virtually, like almost virtually all Muslims said that this is this is inappropriate, and this is not what we don't agree with this, and and uh, and we encourage it not to be followed, and really just shunned it. Um, what what can Islam do about that, or what 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 can be done? That's a, that's an extremely good question. I think there are at least two things that I can think of that can be done. Uh, the, the first one is that there needs to be more Muslims in the newsrooms, in the in in Hollywood, in the I don't know the CBC, uh, who are part of that daily conversation when they get together and decide what stories will be covered today and what you know what's our angle. I think the more Muslims you have in those conversations, the more they're able to bring up other the the other perspectives. So, for example. You know, if we were talking about 9/11, the Muslims in the newsroom could say, "Well, I know people who were in the who were in the towers who died. I know people who were part of the the firefighters, the first responders. Let's tell their stories." So, the more that you get Muslims as part of that decision-making circle, the more you'll see those perspectives being brought. So, I think that's one. And the second one is an alternate media, uh, there, there's a great need for Muslims to, to create and, and the, our own media products where we can totally sort of like tell the story the way we would want to tell it. I'd like to share with you a couple of anecdotes. It's a little bit side of what you're asking, but to me it feels relevant. Um, there, there are two stories that I tell when I teach uh, about representation, uh, and one of them is uh, it's a very old story, but I think it's still relevant, from uh, a 1960s show called The Saint. I think it was starring Roger Moore, and there was an episode where there were going to be some Arabs as the bad guys, and the director had found Arab actors who happened to have blue eyes because, um, you know, not all Arabs are brown-haired and, and brown-eyed. So the producer, the director had found Arab actors with blue eyes and the producer refused to cast them in this role of the, the bad Arabs uh, because they have blue eyes. And he says, My, the, our audience will never accept that these are Arabs 
if they have blue eyes. And the director was like, well, but they're, they're Arabs. Like, no, they're actually Arabs. And the producer's like, well, I don't care. So that's one story that I tell. And then the second one is very similar. It's again, a little bit old now, but there was a freelance journalist from the US who went over to the uh, celebrations in Kuwait to celebrate uh, the coalition that had helped push Iraq out of Kuwait. I think that was around 1991. So the journalist had gone over for one of the uh, commemorations, you know, uh, anniversary ceremonies. And in Kuwait, he found a division of Muslim women in hijab as a division of the army. They had been part of the liberation fighters of, on the Kuwait army. And he'd written a story about these uh, women in hijab. And he'd sent it off uh, to an editor in the US who refused to publish it. And the answer was the US public will not accept this image of Muslim women. So the reason I told you that little side story is you asked, you know, what, what can we do about it? I think I said there were two, three, two things. The first one was more Muslims in the newsrooms and the second one was Muslims to control. So if Muslims can control their own media products, they can tell those stories. Here are the Arabs with blue eyes. Here are the Muslim women who are part of the battalion in their hijabs. As I've talked, I've thought, well, maybe there's a third thing and that's that the, um, Consumers put pressure to bear on the organizations and say, look, we will accept these kinds of images. You don't have to not include them because you think we won't accept them. It's a, sa it's a bit the same how uh, there have been these debates about casting. Uh, for example, you casting uh, when they move from a Japanese anime into a Hollywood film and they cast a white actress in the lead role because of the sense that the TV audience, the film audience won't accept a, uh, an Asian lead. And this is all based on their calculation of the economics about who's going to come and buy tickets and attend the film. So if the consumers let them know, hey, we're okay with this, we don't mind if, you know, the Black Panther is a black actor, we'll still buy the movie tickets and, and come. So the consumers can have a role too by showing that they accept diversity in, 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 in these stories. Yeah, that's, that's important. It, 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 there's a place for us as an audience to uh, to ask for the stories. And, and, and as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, consumers, in some ways, the consumer is king. Uh, the consumer gets what the consumer wants. And so if uh, we, the consumers, ask for more diversity, that's what we'll get. And I think in many ways, we're seeing that now. Um, we're seeing it, well, we're seeing the beginning of that. We're moving in that direction. The needle is going in that direction um, with, uh, with BIPOC uh, uh, casting. So that's um, black, indigenous, or people of color uh, casting in, 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 as you said, you mentioned Hollywood movies. Um, and we're seeing, uh, too, a, a greater variation of um, uh, diversity when we look at our, our newscasters. We're certainly noticing that. And now it's about not just the people who are in front of the camera, now we need them behind the camera and actually bringing forward those stories that, that give us that, that interest, that diversity, because we all know diversity is what makes life interesting. If we haven't got that, life gets, gets pretty boring pretty quickly. And that's, you know, across the board, not just, you know, not just in our, in our palettes or one specific thing. Now, um, it certainly when, when I look at the media, 
uh, and I, I see um, how uh, Muslims are portrayed in the media. I, I, I can see that um, that that bias, that anti-Islamic bias. But do the do the facts, do the statistics actually bear that out? Can can you tell us anything about that? The academic research that looks at media representation tells us that the stats do not bear it, bear bear out that Muslims are so you know um, predisposed to violence. In fact, there's a bias. Uh, to, against Muslims in this regard. So there was one study of the New York Times and Washington Post. There's an over-reporting of mass violence by Muslims and an under-reporting by others, non-Muslims, to the tune of Muslim perceived perpetrators getting 770% more coverage. That's just a mind-blowing figure. In 2017, a scholar in Ontario, whose name is Barbara Perry, documented that there were 120 violent incidents committed by white nationalist groups since 1980, and seven by Muslim groups. So 120 by white nationalist groups since 1980, violent incidents, and seven by Muslims. But if you looked into the Canadian media, you'd think that Muslims were the only ones doing these violent incidents. Uh, and then there was another, I mean, there are so many, I'm not going to go through all, but I just have one more to share with you. A 2015 analysis of the New York Times found that 57% of the headlines with the word Islam or Muslim in them had negative connotations and only 8% had positive connotations. And rebels and militants were the most used words associated with Islam and Muslims. So the research tells us that the media is filtering uh, the information to fit into these paradigms of Muslims as violent and the, the focus on Muslim women being oppressed by the veil. Uh, there's another study that I'll mention, I hope I'm not getting too bogged down in statistics, but there was a survey of the New York Times and the Washington Post's last 35 years of coverage and it found what's called a confirmation bias. So Muslim women were covered when their rights were violated, but other women were covered overseas coverage. This is when their rights were respected. So the reporting overemphasized rights violations for Muslim women and underemphasized countries that in which their rights are respected and the flip side for the non-Muslim women. So this leads to the idea, you know, that the Western women are empowered and liberated and violence never happens to them. And Muslim women, the only thing that happens to them is violence. So these are the ways in which the stereotypes, the media uh, is, is confirming their stereotypes with distorted evidence. Dr. Bullock, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. I thank you for your, your time and your insight. You're welcome. My pleasure. If you would like to get in touch with Dr. Kathy Bullock, you can reach her through contacting me at www.kirkdunn.com. This has been an episode of the Knitting Pilgrim Talks. We'd like to thank the Ontario Arts Council for their support of this conversation series and their funding of Stitch Glass, and the Toronto Arts Council and the Canada Council for the Arts for their support of the Knitting Pilgrim Show. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this about interfaith matters, stitched glass, and knitting, 
please check out our episodes at kirkdunn.com or the Knitting Pilgrim YouTube channel.